This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am David Canfield. Filling in for Katie Reese, we are recording this on Long Memorial Day weekend, and she is on the road. So I hope to be a <laughs> uh, substantial substitute along with Rebecca Ford, who's here with me for this week's interview episode. Hi, Rebecca. Big shoes to fill, David. Yeah, both <laughs> You're doing of us, great. Both we're, of us. <laughs> we're doing fine. Hi. We have two excellent guests this week. Uh, I spoke with Henry Winkler uh, about the Barry series finale, which aired on Sunday. Uh, so that's a spoilery conversation just to get a- out ahead of that. Um, but to start, let's talk about your conversation with Celine Song, who's the writer-director of my favorite movie of the year, I think also your favorite movie of the year, Past Lives. Yes, we both saw this. We saw this movie together um, after Sundance, but still an early screening. And I think we were both just blown away by the way she told this story and you know, it, it's her directorial debut. So the confidence of her as a filmmaker, I found pretty stunning. So I was really excited to, first of all, find out how much of the story is based around her own experience. And right. secondly, just find out how she um, was able to do that, because I think having a directorial debut like this is pretty rare. Yeah, I mean, it, it's especially incredible that this movie was the only one at Sundance that wasn't on the online platform, at least the only notable one. And yet, by far, was ginning up the most conversation pretty much from the beginning. Um, Did she talk a little bit about the rollout of the movie? It's coming out uh, in the summer, and it feels like it's like a certain A24 movie from last year, uh, poised to lead a really long life. Yeah, she seems to be taking everything sort of day by day. So, you know, she didn't have a lot to say about release or strategy or even the success of Sundance. I found her really refreshing in that regard. Um, You know, I did ask her if she had always planned to direct because she wrote the screenplay. And she said she wasn't even sure that anyone would say yes to that idea. But she says that people just really fell for the screenplay and that gave her um, more leverage than she expected uh, in that sort of negotiating that part. She really made it sound like that part was easy, getting the (laughs) film greenlit and financed. And I was like, you are making this sound very easy and other people have not had this easy journey. But I think it had a lot to do with how wonderful the script was. I was going to say, if you've got a script that good, uh, I would hope it, it can be relatively easy. Um, Well, let's listen to your interview with Celine Song. I 
am so excited to welcome Celine Song, the writer and director of Past Lives, which debuted at Sundance to much acclaim and will begin its theatrical rollout June 2nd. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I got to see this film and I don't think I stopped thinking about it for the entire week after. It's just such a powerful and emotional story. For for people who haven't seen it yet, um, it centers on a woman named Nora, who's played by Greta Lee, whose childhood friend from Korea comes to visit her uh, in New York um, as adults. And from what I understand, it starts off with a scene where she is sitting with her husband and her childhood friend in a bar. And from what I understand, that's pulled from your real life, Celine? Mm-hmm. So I just found myself sitting uh, in this bar in East Village, sitting between my child sweetheart, who only really speaks Korean, and my uh, uh, white American husband, who only really speaks English, and he tries to learn Korean, but that's really all he can do. And I was sitting there translating between these two guys who actually have no business or no reason to meet each other or speak to each other, get to know each other. And uh, they were sort of meeting and trying to get to know each other because of me. And I think sitting there, I think I felt very empowered or I felt something special was like sort of passing through the three of us. And then uh, I was sort of looking around the bar and seeing how the people who work there and the other patrons of that bar sort of look at us and think, and I just realized that they were all wondering who we were to each other. Mm. So like, and uh, my first thought was like, oh, you have no clue. It's too (laughs) complex. Um, And then my next thought was, but what if I took the time to tell them, you know, who we were to each other? So obviously this is a very personal story, but how true to life is the rest of this story for you? To me, the way that I always uh, talk about it is a sort of like, it's the truth of something that happened to me, but it was more like the thing that is sort of happening to me or something. Because it's sort of like a the existential crisis or something that <laughs> um, I was sort of going through. And to me, it's so much more about the truth of the thing than like facts or reality or it wasn't it's not really a transcription of my life it's more like a inspired by or an adaptation of what it's been like to sort of like be myself yeah so tell me about sitting down to actually write this I I read that you started around 2019 what was this process like was it a quick was it slow what was the actual process like of writing it for you to me, it's a lot of uh, procrastination and really talking about writing it uh, or telling the story to friends or something like that to sort of like gather up the motivation to push through the procrastination. <laughs> so some of it was like, I kept thinking about maybe uh, writing it for a long time. And then uh, I you know, wrote the first scene of the film and that's the first thing that I wrote. And once I wrote that scene, it sort of like sparked the rest of it. So from then on, it was very quick. And I have to assume you always knew you would direct this yourself. Is that accurate? Um, I really wanted to direct it myself, but I don't think that you can ever guess that because you're, you know, you'd be the first time that uh, I would direct something and it wasn't going to be an international production because uh, it had to be partly shot in Korea. So I think some of it is about like, who's going to take a chance on that? with me. So I think that I was open to the heartbreak of not being able to direct it. Uh, very open to that. 
And so once you had the script, how did it end up with, with A24? Because obviously they supported you directing it. So how did that all come together? Um, it's as simple as, you know, like my agent sending it to them and then them reading it. And I know that part of getting a thing made, uh, it seems like there is something very complicated that needs to happen. But the truth is, it is as simple as uh, if enough people fall in love with the script, then that is the way that it's going to get made. It is as simple as um, writing a script that connects to them. And then the conversation is very simple. You make it sound very easy. People listening will be very shocked. <laughs> no, the writing that. is hard, right? The writing is yeah. hard. Or like the, um, and also talking about it is hard. But um, at the end of the day, if it is a story that feels like um, something that people want to tell, I think that it is, uh, it's been easy every step of the way to find people who have fallen in love with the script. Um, and that's yeah. how I could also convince all my collaborators to trust me and work with me on my very first feature. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about Nora, which I think Greta Lee gives an incredible performance. Um, I've sort of been waiting for her to have a, a lead like this. But when you were putting Nora on the page, how would you sort of describe how you wanted her to come off? To me, the main thing that she and I talked about even from our first conversation is the way Nora has to exist in the film is in two different ways. And those two things also have to come to uh, one singular point, which is Nora. So she has to do this thing where she has to uh, develop and establish her relationship to two men. She's going to connect to them through culture and language as well on top of that. So some of it had to be the the ambiguity of it or the uh, uncertainty of it or the, it, you know, some things were impossible to reconcile. So, so much of it had to do with um, talking to Greta about the feelings of uncertainty or the feelings of not knowing how to play something out because that is actually at the heart of the character. She doesn't necessarily need to know clearly what it is or what she wants or something like that. I think sometimes it is just like in life, something that she's figuring out as she goes. And part of that discovery process has to be in Nora. Yeah. There's such a beautiful chemistry between Greta and Teo Yu. I'm, I'm curious how you developed that as a director between them. Well, I think there was a natural way that we could sort of build it because we sort of started our first conversations over Zoom because we actually, I was shooting this in COVID. So um, just like the way that... Um, Nora and Hesung reconnect um, through Skype. <laughs> Greta and Teo were sort of initially, you know, having conversations about character with me there, but uh, talking through things over uh, Skype. And then uh, when Teo finally flew into New York to start shooting the film, um, we did this little trick where we sort of kept them from touching each other or hugging or anything like that um, until we shot that scene uh, in Madison Square Park where they see each other for the first time in, you know, uh, 24 years. So part of that is that, like, we actually shot that um, fairly early in the shoot, but from that feeling of, like, not really knowing what the other person really feels like to hug or even shake hands or anything like that, from there, um, they were able to build their chemistry because the part of their chemistry has to be that they don't touch and they don't connect in a simple romantic way because 
of their circumstances that their relationships develop. First in Skype and yeah. the second when Anwar is married. Yeah. And from what I understand, you did something similar with your two male mm-hmm. leads where you didn't let them meet. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. I also wanted to treat the two men who are in love with uh, Nora as a, as one would uh, about a romantic relationship. So some of it was also a little bit of trick that we had to do, um, that we did. And it took a little bit of effort from the aid department and the crew uh, to keep the two men apart until the scene where the two of them see each other for the first time. And something that else, else that I did is Greta was rehearsing with uh, each of the guys separately because we're keeping the guys apart. And uh, at the end of each rehearsal, I would ask uh, Greta to tell the uh, actor that she was having rehearsal with what it has been like to rehearse with the other actor. It, it's a little trick that you can do where it's like it starts to form for both of them, the guys, what the other guy is actually like in reality, which is a little different than what you see on in photos or in other movies that they've seen of each other. It's a little bit different than like what they're actually like. And you're also hearing what they're actually like from Greta. So so it is subjective. And um, Greta, through that, I know, learned a lot about what it's like to sort of transverse through these two worlds. And and these two guys and these two relationships. And for each of the guys, they started to um, form ideas about what the other guy is like. So when they saw each other for the first time and we were rolling and the shot that we got while rolling for the first time, rolling um, on them meeting for the first time is in the movie because it was was just so great, you know? Um, And when they saw each other for the first time, there was so much uh, buildup to it that that buildup itself was uh, able to help with the kind of necessary tension and also the warmth and also Mm. the sense of like, I think I know this person, but I just met them feeling. And all of that sort of informed every scene that I had with all three of them, you know? And that was a very difficult thing also for Greta to navigate because she is also trying to reconcile these two her process that she's had with these two guys. And to me, I'm like, um, all of that was uh, just a really simple and simple way that we could get some of the things that uh, we needed for the movie to work. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. 
Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. It's interesting because these are pretty um, unorthodox uh, tactics for a, a director to take. And, and, and for your first film, I, I think you see this in the film. There's a level of confidence to the directing that I really admire. But did you ever feel worried or insecure that you were doing this wrong as, as a first timer? Um, I think that the insecurities and and weakness and things like that are a part of like any creative process. And I think it's especially real because it is the first film. So there's so much more unknown, I think, than I did uh, in theater, for example. Um, but the thing that I knew that was sort of the guiding principle and the reason why I knew that these little tricks or these uh, ways of approaching or this kind of process would work is because um, the thing that I do know is what people are like. Um, And I know that part of it is that the actors are people and they have to do this difficult thing, which is to play characters and tell a story. And every step of the way, the thing that would be at the, that would be the guiding principle for me every step of the way has been character and story and what I know about people. So I think when it came to those things, then I didn't necessarily feel like I was a novice in that way because those things that I always knew. And it's a script that I wrote, so I know the story and character like the back of my hand. And part of working with actors is that you sort of get into a very intimate relationship. I keep talking about it as it is for the duration of the production, it is a marriage. And a part of marriage is understanding them and knowing them and knowing uh, both their unbelievable abilities and their limitlessness and also to know the ways in which that um, the, you know, whatever limitations of, of being a person and being an actor who has to do this very difficult job is going to pull them back. So part of it is just knowing um, the person and the actors in the in the movie really, really well. Yeah. Was there an aspect of directing for film that you liked the least or you didn't like so much? Um, I think that uh, <laughs> my line producer asked me, uh, fuck, Mary kill, um, prep, production, and post-production, <laughs> which I think she asks, I think, all the directors that she works with. And I had a, it was an easy answer, which is that um, I would fuck production because it's like, dynamic you know it's like it's unpredictable it's sort of like sometimes surprising and sometimes it goes well and it's great it's like there's so much in it that is there to uh you know for it to be a great lover you know (laughs) and then um when it comes to post I think of it very much as um yeah I would marry I would marry post because it is more about showing up every day um it is about uh, commitment it is about really seeing the thing super clearly there's no, it's so much of it of, is about sobriety, you know, um, and so much is about, uh, you know, seeing the thing that you are making most clearly. And, and that part to me was also the easiest because I'm used to editing because um, yep. part of writing is just editing. So I think I, yep. that part, I didn't even feel like I was a novice at all. I felt like I already knew how to do that. And then um, when it, and when it comes to killing something, I would like to kill prep because you are making, because <laughs> you're making binary decisions that are yeah. really consequential, that determines how like hundreds of thousands of dollars are going to be spent and how many people are going to show up and everything. 
based on basically nothing, right? <laughs> like just your script yeah. and uh, what you know about uh, how this movie is going to become a great film. So part of it just felt a little bit like I was like a startup CEO or something, or like some kind of a, somebody who was like, like or, like a, or in a bad way, like it's, you know, a snake oil salesman. Like I was very like yeah. trying to be like, yes, because the scene has to be, and part of it is you're selling the dream of how this movie could be. And we don't have a, even a centimeter of film um, that we right. shot. So to me, I'm like, that was honestly the hardest part, you know? Yeah. And I, I, my mom um, is an immigrant. She moved to the U.S. Uh, when she was 18. I, I find the concept of identity and immigration, you know, something I really um, gravitate towards too as well. And, and, and you, like Nora, you know, moved uh, to Canada from Korea when you were a child. So I'm, I'm curious, when did you start sort of looking at how identity and, and your own journey tie together in that way? Has that been something that's always been sort of on your mind? I think that everything that I make and that everything that I try to do uh, has to be about something that to myself is as honest as it can be. And my standard mm -hmm. for honesty uh, is higher because it is myself. So part of uh, making things that to me feels really authentic and honest so much so that like I can feel uh, good about it or I can like it or love it. Um, is that a lot of it is going to end up being about something that I personally feel or I, I personally experience or I, or I have a personal connection to. So to me, it is less about an interest in identity because I think that we're all interested in identity and because we, are, we ourselves, no matter who you are, has an identity. So mm -hmm. it is a little bit more, I would, I would prefer to like the language of like, existence or something where it's like a part mm. of it is about the way that I exist in the world. And part of it is, is that I just uh, have to do things that feels true to me. And that is going to always end up being a thing that stands on its own because I'm going to be focused on that. So I wasn't really thinking about my movie as a movie that is like, well, this is a one that I'm going to really talk about identity because every single mm -hmm. thing that I've written, uh, regardless of it being about specifically immigration or being in love or being married or, um, you know, reconnecting with your first love, regardless of what it is, is always going to be about uh, what feels true to me, what it feels true to me, what feels true to me as a person. And in this yeah. case, uh, it is very important for the story that I am this particular kind of person who is a twice an immigrant person. And it is important uh, that I am a woman, you know? So I think those are all mm -hmm. things that are uh, fundamental to the story. So that's why the movie is the way it is. Yeah. And obviously you've had success in theater and, and now with this film, and I understand both your parents are artists. So at what point did you decide, you know, you were going to be a storyteller as well? Was it always just sort of inevitable or there was a point where you realized that was your path? I just <laughs> have such a relationship to it where I think that it just started incredibly young, where I feel like there was a poem that I wrote about how horrible like a spider eating a butterfly is, but it's horrible, but 
the spider has to eat. So in a way, it's beautiful. <laughs> I think that was the first mm. thing that I ever wrote. And I think I was... How old were you? I don't even you know? remember. I think it was before I immigrated. So it was before I was 12. There was some poem that mm. I, it was just a poem that I wrote. And I remember that kind of an, uh, that kind of a feeling where I just want to, uh, I would just end up writing stuff, you know, whether I intended to be a writer or not, kind of. You know, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I thought I was going to be a psychologist. I thought I was going to be a journalist. I thought I was going to be a copywriter. So I think those are the things that I thought that I was going to do uh, until I was like, eh, you know, I'm going to be a writer. I think I'm going to be, <laughs> I'm going to be a dramatic writer. Yeah. And I was uh, reading some interviews you did around your play Endlings, and you said you were breaking up with theater. So I'm I'm curious how your journey got you to that point where. <laughs> where you were breaking up with it. <laughs> I think that the theater that I fell in love with was uh, theater from uh, 80s in New York, which mm. was a pretty experimental time. And a lot of theaters were really specific to what can be done in a theater. So it was what I would just call it. It's like it had incredibly big, ambitious theatrical moments that is, in fact, very different than moments on screen. And yeah. when I got to uh, New York, uh, something that I realized is uh, because of real estate, because of the way that New York has changed, that theater was actually very difficult to find. Um, and the space that that kind of theater existed uh, was shrinking daily. And there's even now I, I worry because I feel like there's not enough spaces for uh, in the city for experimental theater. And what that does is that it starts to dry up the writers and directors and actors who can do experimental theater. So I could just feel my friends who also fell in love with theater for the experimental and showed up to New York thinking that they can make their work that way, um, start to move away, start to quit. Part of it because there's just no viable economic means to make that happen as so much of theater uh, shifts towards wanting to emulate uh, what happens on screen. So I think that's, to me, it's over time. I think for a while when you're younger, you think that uh, you can save theater. And I think mm -hmm. there had to be a moment, like any relationship where you have to say, well, I cannot actually save this person. This person has to save itself. I can't do this for them. You have to break up. So to me, that was the process of breaking up. It is just like a relationship to any lover, partner. Yeah. So you're in a relationship with filmmaking now. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. It's great. <laughs> now I'm in. It's going great. Um, I'm having so much fun. You're, you're in the honeymoon phase. Ooh, a full honeymoon phase. Um, and I think it's also like I always talk about it as a bit of a discovery for me as well. It's like... I just realized um, that I'm a filmmaker as I was making the film, or I found myself like that. And to me, that's the most meaningful part of making this film to me. Um, I remember sitting in a corner in uh, South Korea and because of the like sun, because of light, um, I didn't get to do everything that we wanted. And me and my DP were uh, upset and we were talking about it. And I th think that because of the 
the weight of the day and my the production. And because of the way that the sun didn't help us that day, I was uh, crouched over and like crying. And I think that um, I could hear that the crew who were walking by thought that I was crying because I was moved by the scene of the film. <laughs> and, and the truth was that I was just upset about not, not um, <laughs> not getting everything that I wanted for the day, for the, sh- for the shot, for the shoot. Yeah. And to me, I'm like, that's been sort of my process for it, um, of making this film and talking about the film, which is that the, the, this film is unbelievably personal to me, of course, in the conception of it, but it is unbelievably personal to me because it is a discovery for me as an artist that this is uh, what I've meant, always meant to do, or this is, uh, I just feel at home here, or like it fits me like a glove or whatever the language is. I think that I just, so part of it has been be learning that about myself and also like learning my limitations and also learning that I can always push that limitation a little bit further than I always thought I could. Yeah. Yeah. Are you already working on the next film? Oh, uh, yes. Script? Mm-hmm. Um, what's it about <laughs> I'm kidding. You're not gonna I can't tell, tell me, you obviously. sorry but but later <laughs> no. we'll talk about it later <laughs> well I obviously you have this friend from your childhood and you have your husband who are loosely portrayed in this in this film what did these two men have to say about the story being told like this uh, my childhood sweetheart and I are very, very platonic. And I think mm-hmm. uh, he has his own personal life and, you know, uh, he he knows and, you know, we've talked about it, but it's really, on uh, again, it's an adaptation or inspired by of a certain event more than a reflective of our relationship because our relationship is pretty platonic, like, like friendship. Um, so my husband is a writer himself and he is uh, my first reader. So he's been a part of the process of writing this, you know, from the beginning. So how does, how does it feel about it? You know, he loves it. He's so proud. He gets it. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Uh, well, for our second interview this week, I spoke with Henry Winkler, um, who has been so outstanding on Barry for all four of its seasons. Rebecca, are you caught up on Barry? I am almost caught up, but I am a fan of Henry Winkler in just the general experience of being a fan of Henry Winkler, because he seems like the nicest man in Hollywood. And I'm, I'm curious um, how he is to talk to as an interview. I've never spoken to him. Is he sort of as generous and wonderful as I would hope? I think he's the nicest man in Hollywood. In the interview, he had his Emmy very sweetly positioned right behind him. And and we got into the fact that he's very proud of winning an Emmy for this show. And he doesn't quite believe people who say use it as a doorstop. Um, And that's a good, I think, representation of how he feels about this show overall and how much it's meant to him. The bond he developed with Bill Hader the challenges posed by the role and the material um, and eventually getting to be entirely directed by Bill Hader in this final season and what came of that. It was a really kind of late career surge renaissance for for him and he's taking it all in. Um, But it was it was also bittersweet. The first thing he says in this interview is he's sad. He's sad it's over. But I think that you know, you'll get it, you'll gain in this conversation a real understanding of 
of why he's sad and the many ways um, in which this project meant so much to him. Again, spoilers. I will not spoil you either, Rebecca. (laughs) Um, But let's go ahead and listen to this conversation with Henry. Uh, Henry Winkler, welcome to the show. Barry is officially finished. How are you feeling? Well, I'm now just sad. Uh, You know, we finished in uh, November, December, early December. We had some reshoots. We've had the the premiere party. And then I don't see anybody anymore. Uh, You know, Sarah is in England. Stephen is off uh, shooting something. Everybody is everywhere, and I am sad. Yeah. For for as dark as the show could be, I always got the sense, that, off camera at least, that you had all really evolved into quite the, the family, quite the said family. That is truly. We are a really supportive, um, talented bunch of human beings that really like each other. I just was in New York and I saw Darcy Carden, who mm-hmm. was my assistant in class, who was um, Sally's assistant on her show. We saw her on Broadway. Yeah. It was thrilling. Yeah. Well, let's get into this conclusion. Uh, sure. What was your initial reaction, particularly to, to Gene's ending? He, uh, of course is the one who does the deed and and does Barry Berkman in. Oh, my God. So halfway through the the season, Bill said, you know, I think we finally broke the eighth episode, the end. You want to know how it ends? And I went, sure. (laughs) And he said, you shoot me. (laughs) Wow. And I'm a pretty verbal guy. I was speechless. Yeah. I just made sound. I didn't even know how to react to that. I Mm -hmm. shoot you. Wow. Okay. That's okay. And I went and had a burrito. Uh, I, I, and then we got there and we did it and you could hear a pin drop, you know, and there I am pointing a gun in his direction. Yeah. And that was scary. And then, you know, I think it the moment really started when I was lured into the hotel room at the end of seven, you know, um, and then they're blaming me for everything. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? And then I had nowhere to turn. And I think at that moment, I went insane. I yeah. think I literally, the, 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 the the switch flipped yeah and led me to the point of no return both with ending the show and with exactly what you're talking about the sort of switch going off is there some reflection for you in the performance and just in the experience of making the show of what gene has been through what this relationship between him and barry has been that leads to this incredibly violent and upsetting end you know when you when we started and you think about that first year and teaching and buffoonery and charlatan and how that led to this ending of the entire show you never i never in my wildest actor's imagination, 
would have come up to this, would have figured that this was going to happen, no matter what this man put me through. Yeah, it's it's really remarkable. What was it like to actually film it? How did you block it out with Bill? How did you? How many takes did you do? What do you remember about the actual process? I think we did two takes, mm-hmm. and what I remember was the 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 take I remember. I shot him in the shoulder. He sat down in the chair. He flopped in the chair. And he said, you don't have to do this, Mr. Cousinow. And I shot him twice. Mm-hmm. And then in the, the final, he just went, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it was like he was in disbelief. Um, you could hear a pin drop. You know, and our armorer and our uh, prop people uh, were extraordinary in how careful they were when we handled a gun on that set. Uh, that was my uh, my experience. And it still was so scary to think of holding a gun yeah. on this human being I love anyway, this character my character loves but hates, this character who loves me, who looks at me as his father figure, it is so complicated that I didn't, I had no idea what I was doing. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's quite a heavy ending. I'm, I'm curious if the the time jump in the show and, and the tr- real physical, visual transformation of Gene got you into that headspace a little bit more um, where we see him in a, in a pretty dark space throughout these last two episodes. Um, the, the physicality was um, for Gene was a costume was yep. makeup, you know, uh, in the real filming, we stopped filming Gene. They, uh, I grew a beard. I took a picture of the beard uh, every week. I send it uh, to uh, Aida Rogers and Bill uh, mm-hmm. they said, keep growing, uh, and, nope, keep growing. And then finally it was long enough. They called me and we started filming again. And, uh, you know, I had been on a kibbutz where I was helping people build their homes. Yes. I was learning to be a better human being. The only thing is what they didn't show you was the homes fell down. Yes, of course. Yeah. The story of Gene Cousineau, right? <laughs> That's, that is the story of Gene. Yeah. But wow, I pounded those nails. <laughs> you've talked a lot um, over the years about your real affection for Bill Hader and the bond you felt with him and even the way he's you know impacted your performance at times. I'm curious in that context what it felt like to film that final well, scene. That's an interesting thing because you have to separate out what I'm feeling for Bill Hader and what I'm feeling for Barry. Mm-hmm. Um but remember, this is a guy that I thought was like the son I wanted more than the son I had. 
Uh, he loved me like a father figure. I thought I was in control. He killed the woman I loved. The Finally, there was somebody I could actually move outside of myself for. Mm -hmm. And here I was. Oh, and he was like a prize student. You know, I, uh, you know I, I, he got jobs because of me, of course. And here I was faced with, but I think by the time I was holding that gun, I was way beyond this galaxy. Mm. Do you mean as an actor or the character? As a character. Yeah. <laughs> You're still here with us as an actor. Yeah, because, uh, you know, now he's in prison, mm -hmm. uh, as the legend said. And my instinct is that once he comes to some equilibrium, he has started the drama club in prison. He's, you know, I'm uh, I'm going to be famous because I am the drama teacher, and uh, I'm going to uh, put on a play, and the prisoners are going to love it. You might be inadvertently pitching a spinoff here, Henry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can hold out hope for that one. Um, it's an interesting thing because this is such an artful show. And you mentioned at the beginning of this feeling quite sad. Um, but it also sounds like there's a kind of willingness to say goodbye to the character, um, which can be difficult. You know what? There is. I, I didn't think of it, but there is. It is not necessarily brought on by um, wanting to have the willingness. But Bill and Alec were uh, just amazing bosses. Uh, there was a policy from the very beginning, a no asshole policy. Mm -hmm. uh, not in the crew, not in the cast. And if somebody uh, was upsetting the apple cart in any way, they were you didn't see them again. They were gone. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, Alec moved on. He has a, a, a new deal. He's going to create a new show. Bill is going to go on and direct wonderful things. To watch him grow from the first, you know, the first season, they both directed two and then other people directed the other four. Then they directed a few more and uh, then Bill decided, uh, this is my season, I'm going to do this. And he, he, he did all eight and to watch him was an amazement. He directed with such economy with such clarity that sometimes he went, okay, that's it. And you would be gone at two. Whoever heard of that, that you're home at two. Yeah. You know, then he was always, he was open. He, he thought, you know what? We're going to shoot this scene with you, Henry, on your back, the entire scene on your back. I think it's going to be very cool. Very, very, very strong. Mm -hmm. And then he saw the dailies. He said, whoop, I made a mistake. I want to see your face. And we went back and reshot the scene uh, on my face. Mm -hmm. It just is, it, it doesn't happen often. Yeah, it's an incredible eye. Um, and in, in the scene, like the last, your last scene with him, it's a great example of his feel for both really involving intense drama and kind of absurdist comedy because there is a sort of puncture of, I laughed when he said, oh, wow, it's, it's very darkly funny, but it is. Yes. Um, in terms of that scene, I assume you've seen the episode. 
Yes. Were you surprised by the humor in that moment when, when it played that way? I'm always, I swear to God, no, I'm not being glib. I'm always surprised. I've said this before. Now, I rehearse the scene. I'm pretty sure I know what I'm doing. I have a great strong take on it. I'm going to bring it to work. Then Bill gets a hold of it. And you had no idea what he is saying at this moment was even in what you had just worked on. Wow. I had no idea that was there. Okay. I don't see it now, but I'm with you. Yeah. Moving to the to the movie within a movie. Was it weird to watch that uh, movie within a show, I should say, uh, that ends the series, essentially, um, to see the show, the events of the show play out in this sort of bizarro alt-universe way? Well, you know what? I, I, I It was, again, a, a brilliant piece of imagination Mm -hmm. and yet I think that Gene if he had ever seen that movie because now he's never going to see it but if he did he would be oh you know that uh, that's just not true that that really pisses me off it was not my fault I I hate the way I'm portrayed in that it's true you know and and he would go on a campaign uh and do every podcast he could to set the record straight from prison. That's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, who do you, like, If imagining this movie it, it existing within this universe, what kind of actor do you imagine is playing him? What level? What, you know, brand? Well, you would have to have a pretty terrific actor to play Gene <laughs> because you have to make being an asshole palpable. You have to, you know, it, it was only in the f- middle of the first year as I was playing Gene, I went to the boys, um, to Alec and Bill, and I oh, I said, oh, oh, he's an asshole. <laughs> I had no idea. I just thought he was like a bad teacher, and every once in a while he would show, you know, some uh, tinge of humanity. So you know, you you, you it, it's really hard to play bored without being boring. So it's yeah. really hard to be bad and good at it. Yeah. So how did you figure that out over the seasons? I I didn't have to worry because I was just playing this human being who I was convinced was a gift to the universe. Yeah. You know, uh, that's how I I figured out that, uh, you know, eventually he will calm down. Eventually he will accept his fate and look around and go... I will be an auteur in prison. I I will walk the line in Folsom. Um, this has been a pretty amazing role and opportunity for you. Yes, that uh, is you true. have the Emmy right there in your in your window, which is nice to see. And yeah, you know what? I like seeing it too. <laughs> as you should. As you, you know, should. I, you know, there are actors who say, "Well, it means nothing. I I have it in the bathroom." <laughs> I actually think those people are full of it. I would, I would, I would tend to agree with I you. I think so. I think that I use it as a doorstop. I don't believe that. If I could, I would wear it as a necklace. <laughs> that that would require some real uh, ingenuity. L- neck right. muscle, a <laughs> yeah, lot of exactly. neck muscle. Also, that that's very true. Um, but but given the the scope of the role and what it asked of you, what it allowed you to do. 
does it change the way you think of yourself as an actor, what you're capable of, or is it you more? Do you know what, David? That is true. Mm. That is true. I could not have done this just a few years ago. Mm. I don't know that I could have done it much before it came into my life. That I needed, when I did the Fonz, mm -hmm. I would talk from my mind about who I wanted to be as an actor. Not always being able to achieve it. Mm -hmm. There was always a distance, always a schism. Yeah. And as I worked through my career, the good and the bad, the up and the down, the, the journey and age and just the, 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 what you learn from living, I was able to calm down and I'm starting to be the actor that I thought of being at 27. Hmm. Is it something you sensed kind of in real time as you were getting deeper into the show? Like, oh, I'm, I'm doing this in a way. Do you know what? You know when I, I tasted it? When I auditioned for Bill and I was freer and calmer and more relaxed, or is that is the same as calm, but... I, I was able to let my imagination be stronger than my wanting to be right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Looking back, do you have a favorite uh, scene or moment that you got to play in the show? Well, I loved the scene with Robert Wisdom in the... Yes. Um, but I love the scene in my office when my gun fell apart. I love the scene when I was just teaching Bill to be an actor and we were walking down an imaginary aisle of the supermarket. And there he let me um, ad lib some where I literally reacted to um, his badness. What do you see? I see gum. No, you don't. The gum is up by the register. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, it just, uh, the soup. I see soup. What kind of soup? What, what do you see? What, you know, it, I was able to really be in the moment with him and he is so incredibly generous as a soul that we were there. I, you, you cannot make up that, um, chemistry. Yeah. You either, it's either there or it's not. Yeah, it's very true. And it really extends to your whole cast um, for, does, a show, yeah. for a show that is about acting in a lot of ways and depicts acting. What did you gain from working with, in addition to Bill, folks like Sarah and, and, and Steven? Well, Sarah, and you always have to be on your toes <laughs> because she's so powerful that if you're not in the center of, what, of the moment, she'll blow you through the wall. Mm. Stephen Root just is. He is the raven. He is the raven of goodness. And he is as scrumptious as he is good. He and his wife. Uh, I didn't have a scene with Anthony, right. although off screen, Anthony is just lovely and bouncy and warm. Uh, Darcy Carden, 
who is an improviseur genius. Uh, I took her with me when I went to, uh, I was asked to teach two classes at uh, South by Southwest. One of them was an improv class and they said, who would you want to bring? And I, uh, Darcy came with, um, and then I kind of walked off the stage and she just did it because she was so incredible. And I just saw her on Broadway. She's in the, uh, the Thanksgiving play. Mm -hmm. But if you go to New York, do you go to the theater? Yeah. I, I, when I can, when I can, yeah. Okay, but if you go um, uh, before the end of July, I'm just telling you, Sean Hayes is plays Oscar Levant. I, I'm planning on seeing it, yep. Run, <laughs> don't walk, it is revelatory. Oh, you will wait. jettison out of your seat. Yeah, nothing that you've ever seen Sean Hayes do is on that stage. Okay. It is like, if he doesn't win the Tony, there is something wrong with the universe. <laughs> oh, now I'm excited. Thank you for the tip, because I am planning on seeing it. <laughs> um, well, before we wrap, Henry, um, any last thoughts on Barry as you say goodbye, as, as this experience sort of is in the rear view? No, just uh, I, like everybody else, um, I am so grateful that I was invited to be able to be part of this. Then you think, am I ever going to do anything that will be as uh, meaningful or as powerful again? But then I, did, I thought that when I was the Fonz. When the Fonz was over, I thought, so am I ever going to get anything this fun? And you know what? You don't know where the universe will take you, but the possibility is, yes, there's something waiting. That does it for today's show. Thanks so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter at DavidCanfield97. Rebecca, where can listeners find you? Rebecca M. Ford. You can also email us, the whole team, at littlegoldmen at vf.com. And our producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.